who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Some of you may think a podcast about representation, it's not for me. But if you're a human being, then the podcast Reppin is for you because we all represent something as people. So are you interested in knowing what you have in common with your favorite actors to best-selling authors and leaders in different genres? On Reppin, you'll meet notable people you think you know, You'll see what they show up for, and you'll see what they represent. It's an insightful, feel-good show, hosted by me, Evelyn. So come and take a listen. Reppin is available wherever you get your podcasts. Good day, good people. This is Brad King. You're listening to the Downtown Rotter's Jam Podcast. Glad to have you here. Glad to have you listening. Got a really great show for you today. Had a chance to sit down with uh, Two Black, a spoken word artist here in Indianapolis. Um, I met him four or five years ago when he was at Ball State. And I uh, met him through the National Association of Black Journalists an organization that I advised for a few years. And what really, it's funny, we, we didn't say that much to each other. We didn't have much interaction. Um, he had moved off of the board by the time I showed up, and he was advising, helping, um, helping the new leadership team. And he did, uh, he put on these spoken word shows, and I thought that was really weird that in this journalist organization, he was putting on these shows. But what, what I really liked about him and what I, I've known that I've wanted him on this show for a long time is that he had this clarity of voice and vision and argument that not a lot of young writers have. Um, not a lot of writers have, let's just be honest. Like, not everybody is able to sort of parse out and figure out what they want to say and then say it in a meaningful way. And, man, he doesn't fuck around. Like, it's it's... It's really good stuff. And so I've been, we've been circling around each other for a while. And what you're going to hear today is one hour of a four-hour conversation that took place at Indy Reed's Books up there on Mass Avenue, if you ever happen to get to Indianapolis or if you are in Indianapolis. And the conversation is probably not exactly what you would think, um, considering I'm interviewing an artist named Too Black. They've certainly we touched on race. 
and class, which is where I come from. Uh, but really, it, it is we had to we just didn't want to stop talking because it was this sort of um, wide ranging discussion about the ways in which you find voice and come up with voice and sort of figure out the ways in which you approach bringing that voice to an audience and how audience and expectation and conversation around what you do shapes what you make. Um, and it was just, we both looked down at the clock and it was 3 PM. We'd gotten there at 11 and realized we had to get about our day. So it's, it is a, I think, um, one of the, the most fascinating conversations I've had, uh, in a while. So we'll get to that in just a couple minutes in terms of business at hand. Who's your lit comes out on May 19th. It's our first issue. We have 19 Indiana writers, 24 pieces. You can get that at the geekypress.com backslash who's your lit. Really excited about that. And if you're in town on the 19th, we're having a big opening release issue release party. We also continue to work on the Dear America project. Uh, submissions for that are closed. Um, we had so many people submit that we had to stop phase one, which was collection, um, so that we could get through everything. So we're now in the process of figuring out what the selection process is going to look like. So really excited about that project. Um, we got some other stuff coming down the pike. Things I'm not quite ready to talk about yet, but we got some other book projects that we'll be going for. So all in all, we got a ton of stuff going on. Make sure that you go to thegeekypress.com. And keep up with what we're doing or join our meetup group if you happen to be in Indiana. But for now, I want to turn this over to the conversation that I had with Two Black. So I think when did you when did you graduate? 2012. It was actually like essentially five years ago, as of like May 5th. Yeah. So today's the second. And I, you were um, I met you I think just very briefly with the NABJ. Was mm-hmm. that were you with Brad Gray? Is that when Brad and then um, then B Pope or Brandon Pope yeah. who just got a new job in Chicago? Shout out to Pope. <laughs> I know, yeah, right? Yeah, like he's excited. Yeah. But that Brad was the president at the time. Yeah, I think. Brad was the president. And uh, you had I is as that year you put on a spoken word thing. I think you brought Tony Sticks up. Yeah, That's, we we brought Sticks. I think I did my own version. We did several of them, so I don't know. That at school year, it was like a thing. that school year that we did do sticks. He did him in um, September of yeah. 2011, and that was my because I had just gotten to Ball State like a year or two before. Um, and Tendai had who had been the advisor had that he retired, so I took over, and so I sort of came in. I didn't know anybody in TCOM, I didn't know anything that was happening. It's like, why are journalists doing a spoken word thing? <laughs> and Brandon was just like, it's fine, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So was that a th- how long have you been um, doing the spoken word as like a like publicly like that you've sort of said this is it this is what I'm doing you've been doing it your whole life um, I started in performing in college I've been been um, 
writing since I was like 12, but as far as poetry, but started when I was in college. It wasn't it wasn't really like this thing where I'm like, I'm going to be a spoken word artist now, and then I'm going to go make a career out of it. You know, <laughs> it's not really how it played out. It was more, I just had something to say. I thought I was just angry. And I remember one, I did this one poem about delivering pizzas and going to school, and people thought it was funny. But I was just mad. I was just, I don't know what, what's my language on here. No, you're fine. Okay. I was just pissed <laughs> off. Um, but, you know, people laughed at it. So I, and not like in a, yeah, in an insulting way, but they found, they got they it. They found humor in, in my passion, but I wasn't going for that really. Yeah. I thought I was going to get booed off stage and people were laughing and people remembered me for this poem for years. Yeah. Throughout college and some people still remember me. I would be delivering pizzas and would get stopped by people on a delivery. Like, did you do that poem about how you hated school and Pizza Hut? And you know, like I'm holding a pizza in my hand, and, and I would get stopped by random drunk people in in um, the village and at Ball State. So yeah, it, was, it just kind of became its own thing. And you, I guess I remember um, the pieces that I saw were about education and particularly about your not really enjoying the education system. Yeah. That started there. Yeah. And that, I think that was when I came and I, that I told Brandon, um, cause he, I think he became uh, the next year is when he was the president. Mm-hmm. He and I worked pretty closely together and I was like, that's some really interesting stuff that I bet probably both is needed here and was not, people didn't know how to deal with that up in Muncie. Nah. I mean, for me, it was, I went, I was like, I guess I remember when I was about to go to college and my my father was like, well, you know, trying to push me to go. and Because I, I didn't really want to go. Yeah, me know? neither. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, and he was like, yo, you know, it's, you're going to meet more people that are like you and that are, yeah. you know, like me as in people that are interested in like intellectual things and stuff like that and black culture. And I, I got to college and I didn't really... <laughs> feel like that was happening. It was like the same bullshit. In many ways, it was worse than high school in in, in the letdown. Like high school, you kind of knew right. it was bullshit, right? Because you you were uh, where'd you grow up? Muncie. Oh, so yeah. oh, so you <laughs> yeah. So and, and and nobody really sells high school to middle school students yeah. as going to be anything amazing. It's yeah. just kind of something not an you, intellectual pursuit. Uh, <laughs> you know, unless you're going to some some major private institution. Right. So. Going into college, you were told you're told you're gonna finally meet people of like mindedness. You're gonna it's gonna be a more open world. Yeah. Um. You know, and it was it, and it was like this is the same bullshit with a less constraints. Yeah. Um. But it was pretty under much- the auspices of something different, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is a. Um. I was just having this discussion the other day. Like part of the reason that it that I decided to leave teaching. In higher ed, I never wanted to do it. Like it was sort of a thing that I did for a little while, mm. and sort of in transition between writing was that there is this illusion of intellectual, diverse thinking mm-hmm. and discussion, and what it turns out is a lot of people planting flags and yelling at each other about why you don't agree with me. Mm-hmm. To which I found, I just I don't understand that. Um, I like to wade into the sea and. I, somebody a long time ago said that you don't use education as a hammer, right? Like, it's not about winning. Education isn't about winning. It's no. about expanding the things and understanding things you don't understand. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So you are we are you a lifelong were you born in Muncie? Yeah, I'm from born and raised in Muncie, Indiana. I live in Indianapolis now, but yeah. What were you like as a kid? <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, as a kid, yeah. it was a lot different. I was always quiet. I was always um pretty into into whatever was in my head. Um very observant. Wasn't really <clears throat> You couldn't have told me I was going to be a poet or anything as a kid. I was just, I was just kind of wondering in a way. Like they, the teachers thought I had um, ADHD or something at, when I was in grade. Was this because you were quiet and thoughtful? Yeah, that seems like I, the opposite I, of. Well, you know, they say where a kid wonders yeah. and, and he doesn't pay attention yeah. or whatever. You know, and they do this a lot with black boys. Like when we wonder, or we get. We we don't seem to be interested. They automatically think there's something yeah. wrong. It's like statistics show we are diagnosed with that more mm-hmm. than others, despite the same behaviors. Right. So they told my mom that. And my mom was like, "He's just bored," you yeah. know. You know, <laughs> which is what a lot. Yeah. Of, so I used to teach. I taught middle school before I did all this stuff, and I taught the kids that were failing out of school. Ninety five percent boys. Right? There's mm-hmm. always like one girl in the class, and it was like, okay, she's acting like the boys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and a large percentage of them are black. Mm-hmm. And I'd always tell them, like, you're not here because whatever. You're here because they don't understand yeah. <laughs> who, yeah. <laughs> who you are. And so they're like, here's a class. Go over there. Because we don't want to do with you. Right. Yeah. Um, and I oftentimes found 99% of the time it's boredom. Mm-hmm. Boredom. They're just not engaged in whatever it is you're doing is not mentally connecting with them. Not that they're not able to connect with it. You just are not finding it's those not spaces. Yeah. yeah. And so if you continue to do it louder and more. <laughs> and that's where that hammer comes in, right? right? Yeah. And you think you can hammer them into shape. Right. You end up hammering them into prison. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, if they're honestly, if they're lucky. Right. Yeah. Like, cause a lot of times it ends worse than that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, were you an only child? No, I have a, I have a little brother. So you were the oldest. Yeah, I was, I'm the oldest. Uh, and were you? Did you start writing? Were you a reader? Like, did you stay in your head and like, like what did you do? What? I was um, trying to think. <laughs> I went through phases. So, because I was also an athlete. Yeah. So there's a lot of strain between being an athlete and being somebody who's into like nerdy stuff. Uh-huh. You almost have to pick one. Yeah. So there were certain phases in my elementary career before I really got into career, before I really got into elementary um, <laughs> school, before I really got into um, sports, where I remember like third or fourth grade, we had, you know, this elementary school, I have like those reading lists who yep. read the most. And there was one semester, well, not one semester, one, one or two school years where, you know, I was at the top of that because yeah. I was reading all of these books and getting these points and was getting all A's, and then... <laughs> that did not go well. Nah, it, it, eventually you just get pulled into the, the, yeah. the sports thing, and it's not... A, academics mattered enough where you needed to make the team. Yeah. I wasn't, like, a C student or anything. Yeah. Because it wasn't hard to pass a class, but it became a thing where, you know, it wasn't as important. Yeah. So I go from comic books and Batman and... Cause I really like the storytelling in all of my cartoons. Yeah, and like, that's really what appealed to me. You know, I used to play with my toys, but with my little brother, I would he, I would get on his nerves because I was really direct about the story, <laughs> and it needed to have. We needed to have a whole plot line right. and a climax, and you know he he would just want to like fight. <laughs> 
I'm like, no, we need. Right. They need the motivation. Yeah, where's the dialogue? <laughs> where's the passion? And I used to get, we used to get in fights about this. Like, you're not directing the toy. Like, he would want to rise them up in the air. I'm like, no, these toys need to sit down. These toys fly. These toys can right. jump hard. You know, everybody had different characteristics. Sure. So I was always assigning all of these ideas to things early on. I didn't realize it, of course. Right. Um, and then when I get into sports, I definitely saw that decline. It wasn't just pe- that people maybe – I think people did make fun of it, but it wasn't just that. It was just that it's not something that – It's not part of it. No, it's not something that culture that's encouraged. Yeah. I was a baseball player, and uh, from a very – like, they used to call me the professor. Like, Because I'd sit on books I'd, – I'd read books on the way to games, and mm-hmm. – uh, not that my, my friends weren't dumb, but that's just like we weren't gonna. I wasn't gonna get done reading Gatsby on the bus and be like, "Hey guys, like, what did you think about?" Yeah, like that it wasn't, wasn't a thing. The thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I actually, by the time I was in high school, what, junior and senior year, uh, I got kicked out of all the AP classes because all my none of my friends were in there. So I just started failing stuff on purpose so mm-hmm. that I could like go back to algebra two mm-hmm. as a senior. And I'm like, mm-hmm. now I, you know, it was just. Nobody ever told me to do it. I just was like, I'm sick of sort of being here by myself. Yeah, uh, yeah it's a socializing thing. Yeah, and you don't even really, like, I look back on it, and I'm like, well, that's dumb. Because <laughs> you know? like, I kept doing, which I'm assuming you did, I kept reading, I kept, my, those interests sort of existed. I just kept them separated. Like, they were two different areas of my life. Yeah, and it, it because of, I remember it became cool to almost not be smart. It yeah. became cool to be kind of ignorant and, not into certain things. I started to emulate that in middle school, even though that really was never me. Yeah. Because um, <clears throat> I remember when I, when I got into high school, things changed a little bit, but I remember in middle school purposely dumbing myself down and purposely sh- acting like I didn't know things as yeah. much because that made me cool to people or whatever. And as athletes, that was, that was the thing to do. I remember even on our... What eventually made me become become disenchanted with the experience, even on our bus rides, all we talked about was sports and girls. Yeah. Our bus rides, any game, right after practice, we talk about sports and girls, and that's fine. I can still talk about sports and girls, <laughs> right. but there are other things in life. Right, that's all we would talk about. I don't remember hardly any other conversations, um, <clears throat> and so it got it really got old, and it got to the point where you couldn't, you know, we. we we didn't cherish anything else, and it, I don't think it was on us. I mean, we were kids, right. you know, but it was was nothing that was encouraged. So yeah. when we get to high school, I get cut in tenth grade, and I think that really changed a lot of things for me because I had to let that go. Yeah, you know, I had so I go from practicing after school. You know, we're practicing sometimes three hours after we get out of school right. or whatever, and then the bus ride home and all of that to um, to going home to write. Or yeah. writing in in study hall that I used to, that I only had because I thought I needed it for homework for right, to stay eligible. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's you know when I when my career ended, uh, I got hurt and I had some scholarship offers to play, and when I stopped, I went through this because I'd been I was a writer my whole like I always wrote like I always mm-hmm. like I, I was I have I still have everything I wrote like I filed it like I have everything from mm-hmm. middle school on today. But for like two or three years, I didn't know who I was anymore. Like, I didn't really call myself a writer because I'd always just been an athlete. That had been what I thought I was mm-hmm. going to do. And suddenly there was this, like, I don't really think writing's a thing you can do. Like, 
being a baseball player is a thing you can do. Yeah. But a rider, too. I didn't grow up around riders. Like, I, li- yeah. I lived in a little tiny, small. It, the town I grew up in was 5,000 people, right? So it was even smaller than wow. Muncie. Yeah. So it wasn't like there was a grand literary tradition of, like, nah. people that made a career out of riding. So it was a, that was a weird, like, college was a weird three or four years trying to, like, figure out what the fuck any of this stuff meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so you stop. So around, well, are your parents? What are your parents like? What do they do? It's interesting. I come from a religious household. I'm not religious at all, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I grew up in uh, my my father's a pastor. I rarely say this in interviews, so you got some good information. Uh, not that I'm ashamed of it. Yeah. I just don't ever really get asked. But yeah, my father's a pastor, um, so I grew up in the church, um, which made. That could be a whole nother interview. Um, what kind? What, what's the? It was a non-denominational church with apostolic leanings. Uh-huh. That's the best way to put it. Is he a good storyteller? He was a good storyteller, but he was also a good teacher. Yeah. So even I, I notice the older I get, I can notice it more. Like in the poetry, it's, I'm pretty good at framing an argument, uh-huh. and he was always good at that, like framing a perspective, finding a way to kind of empathize with whatever story you're telling. As well as bringing in like larger concepts yeah. and put all of that together, he was always really good at that. Like when he was at his best, he kind of would always have that light bulb moment in the middle of his sermon or towards the end of it, you know. And and he also had an extended vocabulary. So I remember because um, <laughs> he used to make my he used to make my brother film and he made me record. So I did audio, my brother did video, which, uh, interestingly enough, I ended up at TCOM, right? That's how you and I met. Uh-huh. I'm, um, a, I'm already seeing how yeah. you turned into who you are. Yeah. <laughs> so so I used to have to sit in the corner and record on, and this was t- on tape, right? So it's not like this was anything high tech. Right. Um, it wasn't a big church at all. Sometimes it was just our family there, you know. Um, but so we, I remember when he would be talking, I would, I would um, pull out words from his sermons and rhyme those words together in my head. Uh-huh. And I would just kind of be like writing, either rapping or writing a poem in my head and yeah. just kind of summarizing whatever he said. And I may, I may make it into my ho- a whole different thing because he had a pretty, he, he still has a pretty decent vocabulary. So it taught me how to play with words and, um, <clears throat> you know, and I think just being around them in general and hearing them speak. Um, definitely helped me think about like storytelling and how to put words together. And they were also um, yeah, they also had an acapella choir. Uh huh. So doing spoken word is very similar. And like, yeah, you have to know how to make your voice <laughs> extend. You have to also make know how to make your voice sound interesting and how to how to how to go up and down different octaves and different tunes. And I never was like tr- classically trained in music, sure. but just hearing that. All the time when I would be in bed, what they were practicing. Yeah. And, um, and when they were good, they were good. And, and a lot of them, like my father doesn't have a good voice, but he knew how to find his harmony within sure. the group. Um, and that's another important part about knowing how to use your voice. Uh-huh. Everybody doesn't have the greatest voice, but you have to know what is your limitations. Yeah. Like what? How far can your voice go? How far can it not go? So do you spend, <clears throat> have you spent time like sort of saying like, oh shit, like I do the things that I do because. Like all of, like that was the ingredients, right? Like, I would think being around a, a, a father who is a pastor who's telling stories, the acapella stuff, the creating, the doing the audio, like everything that you're telling me about seems to be about this like 
auditory writing, right? Like about doing mm-hmm. these things. And we t- it's funny because we talk about classic training all the time. And I used to tell my writing students, like, I can't teach you how to be a writer in a classroom. Like, mm-hmm. this is not where you learn how to be a writer. Like, this yeah. is where you come in and show things that you've done. And mm-hmm. I can tell what kind of writer you've you are yeah. and I can give you some advice but most of it is like go make terrible decisions like mess up experience life learn to mm-hmm. see and understand people who are not like you and then you know then we'll see yeah. if you're interesting yeah <laughs> <laughs> so do you trace that what you're doing now back to some of that stuff I've started so I for a while I never noticed it I never made the connection that there was any similarities at all <clears throat> now as I look at it and I definitely can see all of the different angles I'd never even thought about how um cause even 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 in the way my even like I said with the poetry as far as like framing arguments deconstructing ideas mm-hmm. um those are the things that my father was good at when he was preaching so even though we may not be talking about this same subjects the approach isn't really that much different yeah like there are some things <clears throat> that are innately me that are more passionate or sure. more militant or whatever, but you know, so there's still my own flavor to it. But there's yeah. a lot of the foundations still come from there. I mean, my mother was a songwriter, you know. <laughs> of course she was. So <laughs> yeah, so it's all, and and my mom is honestly one of the best people to run my poems by because she's from a different world. So mm-hmm. now she's older. Uh, she's in her sixties. Yeah. She doesn't look like it, but she's in her sixties. She's um. She's coming from, you know, a Christian background. So if I'm sharing something with her and it, it makes sense to her, yeah. then it lets me know that I've I've written it past just my immediate audience. Yeah. And she's also fairly critical. Like, I'll give her something, and she's like, eh, you need to go. It's not done. Yeah, you need to go work <laughs> on that. I don't really know where you're going with that. or Yeah. You know, she's nice about it, but in a weird way. Like, yeah. I can run things by her. And she'll tell me whether it's... And usually she's right. Like, usually what she tells me once it's in front of an audience or yeah. read, it 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 does connect, uh-huh. you know. And, and it's weird because she doesn't... She doesn't... She takes care of my grandmother now. She's not... She's not writing or yeah. in front of any audiences. Or, but she just hasn't... She has experience in life, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, and if she's a songwriter, she's... I mean, she spent her life at least writing for... I mean, mm-hmm. you have to... Knowing here's what people are going to do. Um, you start to realize, I think that the people are not that complex. Like there are some things you can, you know, you can tweak and like, oh, if this happens, this is yeah. what they're going to do. Yeah, it's for not, the most part, like you don't come out of some vacuum. Yeah, we like to think we're all self-made, <laughs> but no. So are they? Are your parents? Um, did they encourage the writing? Like as you started to do that, like and and that became um, a thing that you wanted to do. Were they behind that? They, to an extent, yeah. I mean, despite my criticisms, I may have of church. Like they were supportive in my writing because they used to have me publish my poems in the what would it be called the the newsletter? Yeah. Um, Like I had to publish a poem. This was when I was maybe thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. So I was publishing the poems in there. So they were they were on board, and they didn't have to be about church like yeah. it could be about any the world in general it was, it was i was always pretty political even at 14 <laughs> so yeah um i think i remember one of the first poems i probably published was about 9-11 or something i don't remember it but yeah um knowing you how i do i'm sure it was 
Yeah. Not controversial at all. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so yeah, they were they were supportive. Like they, I don't think they expected it to be my career. Yeah, I think they just wanted me to have an outlet at the time. I don't, yeah. I don't think, um, my, especially my father was expecting me to take it this far. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they were they were pretty supportive. Um, so when was the first time in college that you <clears throat> did something? Like that, you did something with spoken word. That you wrote something. Was it the pizza thing where you were like, "Oh shit!" Like, this is a thing. That was it. I I had performed a few times before that. The first time I was told that story didn't go so well because <laughs> I didn't have any stage presence. I was just angry, <laughs> and you have to be able, regardless of what you're talking about. This is any subject. You have to know how to talk to people. Yeah, you can't just talk at them. That's always my theory on it. As cliche as it might sound, so I was just—I didn't have any any point of reference to know, like, okay, how do I make these ideas connect? Yeah, I'm just angry. I don't even remember what the poem was about. I just remember it was called "Drive By," and I was just going through my whole like waking up to the world phase and re- doing <laughs> a lot of reading. And this is like the freshman year in college, so I remember I was in the audience. It's just so obnoxious looking back. Well, I was in the audience reading the Malcolm X biography mm-hmm. while people were performing. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that was a good idea, <laughs> but I'm 19 at the time, so it is what it is. And and I'm I'm just I'm just in my hoodie. I get up there. And I just you know I just like yo. This poem was called Drive By. I didn't have the name Too Black or anything at this time. Yeah. I was just up there under my name. Um, and I just read the poem, and the whole audience just kind of like sat back, like whoa, and they they were clapping, but right. they were looking at me like, is he crazy? Right. You know, I don't know about this cat. Where was it at? This is at Ball State. No, I mean where? Oh, uh, this was in um, this is in the old student student lounge. So this is literally on campus. Yeah, they really didn't have any idea. Mm-hmm. Ball State is not strong on. Um, if you were angry and black, I'm guessing that they did not know <laughs> no. what to do with that. No, and, and, and as much as nowadays we we see how it's become a little more trendy to be like that, like yeah. because of Black Lives Matter, yeah. it's a little you can be more open about those things. But yeah. back then, and that makes me feel old. This yeah. is just 2007, 2008. Yeah. That was not yeah a thing. Like you had Obama running, and it was about being happy and right. and feeling like we had made some progress. Yeah. And I was never on that train, right? So I was always even an outsider to some extent, even amongst my own people, yeah. because I just never really hopped on that train. So, and I was still more accepted by them than everyone else. But sure. it was like it was still sure. a sense of uh, that was that was a demeanor I carried, and and people would try to make me feel ashamed for that. Um, and I just learned to harness it where I don't have any shame. I, and that's where the name essentially can come from, you know. So when did you start going by Two Black? Um, probably <laughs> right after that. <laughs> <laughs> probably sophomore year, I think. Uh, so not too far after nah, that. not too far. Somewhere in sophomore year, I think. What was it in response? Was it in response to um, other black and African-American kids there saying you why are you so er, so angry or was it in response to ball state and sort of being it was everything so all it, together. It, it was i mean it the, the, it starts with um um i'm at a i had a work more worker early job um with, with my father in the summer so it's probably the summer leading up to sophomore year yeah it had to be um and i'm 
going to work. I had to wake up and CNN's playing reruns from the previous day. This is like five in the morning or something. Just thinking about that makes me sleepy. <laughs> uh, so, and they had a conversation. I always tell the story. They had a conversation. CNN. Um, the conversation was: Is Obama too black, or is he black enough? Sure. And it was all white folks discussing this, so, as we do. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the problem off top. Like, right. who are you to have this conversation? Right. And this is a flawed conversation, no matter who's having it. Right. But this is especially flawed. Right. You know, with On you, national network. Yeah, with y'all, with always all white folks and an old white dude. I can't remember the guy's name. He was the one early on to piss me off because they were asking the question. And, no, it wasn't even like a black um It like wasn't anchor. the one black person. No, they didn't have an anchor <laughs> they didn't moderating even bother with that. No. Sometimes my memory is sketched on it because it was so early. Because right. I'm, and that's the thing, I'm asleep. I'm like half asleep. And, you know, you just have the TV on sometimes to wake you yeah. up and you hear this shit. Like, what? Right. It kind of woke me up. But I had to look like, this is a conversation? You know, and it says too black, black enough. And I'm like, no, nah, I, I must be dreaming. Like, sometimes I still don't believe it happened. Like, I still like because I never can find this clip, but I know right. this is a conversation. And, and, the, and the guy was like, um, he was like, well, Obama showed he's more like like Dr. King and less like Malcolm X because he's not militant. And I was really into Malcolm X at this right. time. So I took offense to that. I just thought I was reading the right. book and all that. So, so I'm like, you know, what does this mean? Yeah. So on my way to work. Um, it's just in your head now. Yeah, I'm thinking about this. Like, yeah. what does this mean? And I'm... Um, Which is the center... I mean, I, I so I used to have all of... Uh, as a, when I was in college, I read, like, the FBI files and, mm-hmm. like, everything, right? And I had... Um, all of his speeches from the Audubon Ballroom back when he did the mm. uh, 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 organization of Afro American yeah, Union, yeah. right? So he was doing all that stuff, and I would listen to it like all the time in my room, just because this just shit you don't get in college. Like nah. the, that history did not make it into. Nah. Um, if it did, a very narrow version, of right? It. Like if you like, I took some. Um, uh, like African American history class, right? So it's like, well, you can learn it, but Which only... Ball State didn't even have that, really. We yeah. had one class. I went to Miami University, yeah. so I think there was probably <laughs> one class as well. And yeah. I'm like, I feel like I should know things. Um, I, was mm-hmm. a, I was a woman's studies minor, because I'm the same reason. I'm like, I feel like there's... Mm-hmm. Everybody can't look like me. Like, mm-hmm. it'd be nice and comfortable if they did, but I feel like it just doesn't nine make billion people here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> somebody's done something different. Uh, so that was in your head resonating, and that you were just that was when that became the the name. Yeah, it was like I'm gonna flip this because it was like one. What does that even mean? Right, like, too black, black enough. Have it, you figured that out yet? What does that mean? It's 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 a it's a poor framework. It right. doesn't even. It's not even worth engaging. It's right. like it's the idea. Like I always say, you you can put an in and an out point on what black is and is not, right. and you can somehow say it, it starts here and ends right. there. And anything outside of these margins, we're just not going to count. And right. then somehow white folks on CNN, right, on some corporate network, can define that. Right. And then even with even within the own community, you can't. We can't tell people what is or isn't. Like you know, like it's an experience, right. So to say that you have an in and out, you can have an in and out point on your experience is bullshit. Yeah. Now there are things that we can say politically might not work for the collective or right. whatever, but it's still black, even if some of us don't like that expression right. of it. 
Right. It's it is fascinating. So I'm writing this. So my family's from Appalachia. Like we are literally the people that mm. everybody's obsessing about these days. Yeah, right? like who the, are the these Trump folks? voters and yeah. Yeah, and so we <laughs> founded uh, large parts of um, a South uh, Eastern Kentucky. And uh, so I've written a book, and, and 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 I just finished the draft. But there's a large part of it, and I've told people like this is me trying to explain in some ways race to white people, which mm. is that the anger that you feel from the invisible forces that make you poor, mm-hmm. that class based stuff that we aren't able to talk about. Mm-hmm. Like when you see black people that are angry, you have to ask yourself, what are the invisible forces that you don't see that have mm-hmm. made that? Because if you feel justified in your anger. And I feel like you should because class structures really it's fuck real with people. Yeah. You can't then turn around and go, well, but your invisible forces are not real. They're all made up. Um, and then you're black on top of that in America, right? Which mm-hmm. comes with a whole nother set of things that I can't empathize. I can sort of understand them, but mm-hmm. I can't empathize with them in the same way that I can understand the invisible forces of class and how they mm-hmm. are also the same. And it just amazes me that we that 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 we're unable to have that conversation in this country. Like, like who are these white voters and why are they so angry? I'm like, why, why are we so, why is it so difficult for us to understand that forces shape us and that we're Mm -hmm. both complicit in them, but also at the mercy of them and Mm -hmm. that it's okay to acknowledge that you are angry, not you particularly, but like, like Mm -hmm. you have an anger and that that's okay. Like I can, you can be angry, and that's actually the appropriate response to those forces, and not be threatened by it or defensive about it, or to imagine that somehow we can't have that conversation. Yeah, like, and and I and I think often it's people don't want their their experience um, dismissed. That's that's <laughs> often what it is on all sides. Like. Yeah. I know black people, we we get very defensive when we feel like our experience is being dismissed, like it didn't happen or, we're, you know. That's part of that yeah. invisible, like not yeah. only are, do we not mm-hmm. get to have it, but then you're saying like it couldn't exist and it must just be me. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy to me. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's and, and, and then there's people who come into these communities and try to articulate what your experience is and they point at somebody right or they point at another group and right. they say they're the problem right you know immigrants are the problem right. muslims are the problem so that's what we need to rally against right. um you know as opposed to the problem usually isn't it's not immigrants or right. muslims you know no. it's corporations and you know right. it's always lots and, of things right yeah, it's like, a lot of different things but it's will that's hard <clears throat> Like, that's hard. The loss of things are hard when I can say, well, those people that weren't here who are here now, mm-hmm. like, they've made it worse. Like, I'm not sure that's the case. Yeah. Who uh, don't, and a lot of times those people who don't even have the same power to even affect your situation no. anyway. That's what I mean. Yeah. And so, <laughs> it, it, so you can't talk about those invisible forces that mm-hmm. are all around us that are sort of shaping how you think and what your opportunities are. And like you said, people aren't that complex. So if this doesn't happen, that doesn't happen, then more than likely they're not going to end up where they are. Yeah, you know, good or bad, right? Yeah, I mean, I, when so when we were um, after you guys left, and and Brandon was trying to start uh, get the NABJ to do a a, a newspaper, a black centric newspaper, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Hack," you know, we want it to be inclusive, and I was like. Ball State doesn't need inclusive. Like, Ball State <laughs> needs a point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a good point in general. 
a point of view versus this idea of watered down inclusivity. Yeah, like yeah. I don't. I feel like it is. Um, but again, like it, and I got like I, I love Brandon, and I, and I love you know that idea is important. But I, to me, inclusivity is allowing points of view. Like mm-hmm. that's what that means. It's not. Friendship isn't telling people like you're great. Friendship is being able to be like mm, you're fucking up, yeah. <laughs> and you need to. I'm sorry, you don't want to hear that. Um, and it's hard, right? And I would imagine this is one of those things that um, that I think is Ball State, but also uh, the world, which is that it is really hard when you are part of the minority mm-hmm. to then tell, "Hey, you're great, but you're fucking up," mm-hmm. <laughs> because the blowback that comes to that is. Well, you're just mad. You're just angry. To which the response is always appropriately. <laughs> right? I'm appropriately mad, and I'm yeah, appropriately yeah, angry. And, and you're appro- <laughs> you're 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 um, ratcheting it up by telling me, "Oh, I'm just mad." Right? You know, but it's the privilege. <laughs> the privilege to just be able to be like, "Yeah, you're just mad." Moving on, right? You know, and just shrug it off, right? And that's the thing about you know, with black folks and people of color, you don't really you literally don't have the privilege to just shrug these things off like you have to be aware of this stuff whether you want to engage it or not like i have to be aware of where i'm driving through at night you know right if it's some small town i have to be aware of where the police are i have Mm -hmm. to be aware of how this employer's bias might affect my job opportunities i have to be aware of these things like you can't i can't just move through life like it didn't happen. Right. It's not happening. I mean, I can try to lie to myself, sure, but I'm really playing myself if that's what I'm doing. Yeah, and you know, the the so-called majority doesn't necessarily have to think about that. At least not in that context. No, it's well. And, so the book that I've written is about class. It's largely, and I've said at the beginning, like, look, like you can't talk about these folks without talking about race and gender. But I'm not like read bell hooks. Like if you want to, mm-hmm. like that, I don't need to talk about race because I'm not that is not my experience right? like, I don't need to tell you what it's like to be a woman in Appalachia because I only know stories so mm. go read that but class is interesting in that it is it is not something you see right like so race and gender are optic and yeah. so they become very clear um, and and the discussion points I think with these things because my anger is a di- like you know we came from the working class and my anger was different because we don't even have that conversation in America. Like, if you mention class, people are like, are you Marxist, communist? I'm like, no, yeah. I'm just, I just happen to be from this other place. And so it becomes really difficult. These conversations, I think, become difficult because when those two things intersect, race and class, you have an optic thing that you can see with this class thing that you can't see, mm-hmm. and then you suddenly have this complicated board where mm-hmm. it's like, okay... Um, and the, the, this is the question I've always sort of framed us as, although the, the person has changed over the years. It used to be Oprah. Now it's Michelle Obama. Like, who would you rather be, a poor white guy from Clay County, Kentucky, mm-hmm. or Michelle Obama? Mm-hmm. And 30 years ago, that answer was very simple. Always the poor white guy. Mm-hmm. Right? Always. Today, that answer is a little bit different, mm-hmm. right? If I'm in a car anywhere, any place in America at any time, I want to be that white guy. Anywhere, right? Because I can get pulled over and I don't at any point have a moment where I fear anything's going to happen to me. But if it's 4 p.m. at a business meeting, I want to be Michelle Obama, right? Like that contract's going to get signed. And we don't have a language to talk about. That is a slight, tiny movement, right? Like it's a little, tiny tick. But it that to me illustrates, at least in my world, how difficult it is to talk. Like that is why people from the working class 
and not just white folks. I think anybody from that sort of lower working yeah. class are like, yeah, it's not the same. No, I think that is, I, I push that hard because I, one thing that really changed my writing was moving more into class and race and thinking how it interacted versus just the race yeah. perspective. Um, so, Did like, you find that difficult to make that transition? Mm, what was the poem? I don't know if you ever heard Gangsta Gangsta I wrote, um, and it dealt with, I tried to deal with it in a really like large capitalist, you know, like <laughs> the, the big fat cat capitalist, but... I mean, the thing about coming from Muncie, if we get to the origins of it as well, <laughs> so I can't, I can't grow up in Muncie and not see class, right? Because Muncie's a small hub, and even if you live in the hood, there's still usually a white person down the street, and the hood is a few blocks in Muncie, like so. It does. It's not like I'm trapped somewhere where right. I'm never gonna see. And I, I was, I grew up with a lot of poor white people. Yeah, so that's what made college weird as well. It wasn't just the race thing. It was like the white people I grew up with. I was a lot more comfortable with than the more bougie white liberal. Yeah, like they were more weird to me. Um, <laughs> Have you read Bell Hooks Belonging? You, you, I've read some of that. Yeah, the first essay. I mean, she said like I didn't realize I was a that I was black, a hillbilly, and a woman until I left Kentucky and went to Stanford. <laughs> and then every day somebody reminded me I was one, oftentimes all three of those things. Mm-hmm. Like it is that, and that was, I mean, it's very much about class. Like I, when you live in those small places, like it exists, but you're kind of on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the these more liberal places and suddenly... You're hearing shit you never heard. Yeah, and you're <laughs> and you see it, and a lot of times in these smaller cities where you know we, you know, there's, there's these systemic breakdowns of what happens in a lot of urban areas or whatever. Urban is in bigger cities, but yeah. you know it doesn't necessarily play out the exact same sure. in smaller cities. Still there, um, but like my mother worked at a factory. She was she was in a union. You know, she worked Borg Warner factory left. Muncie and a lot of places in Indiana, Anderson, and yeah. here and Gary, and so that's a working class issue. That's not just a race thing. Yeah. Um, now, it, but those things intersect. Yeah. Like those, you know, those things are like there's, you know, you were saying about Marxism, communists, but people, a lot of people in that world say, you know, race is class politics. Right. Like that's one of the things that they say. Race is a a form of classism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's still, because it still always comes down to resources. Right. And that's what people get confused. We get caught up in a lot of these conversations about feelings and, <laughs> and psychology, and that's yeah. cool, but it's all about yeah. resources. It's always been about yeah. resources and material, and yeah. that we should never miss that point right. when we're having these conversations. And I think that's a major part, and that's yeah. why class doesn't get into it, because we're talking about, well, how can white people just learn to see black people as human beings? That's great. Yeah. But you you know, that's a different level on Maslow's hierarchy of being. Yeah. <laughs> right? like, yeah. Let me own something. And then, uh, so in in this book, uh, when Kentucky was founded, because it's all about like why these people ended up poor, 12 companies own 75% of the land. Mm-hmm. In West Virginia today, 12 companies own 75% of the mineral producing land. It doesn't matter how hard you work. Mm-hmm. If you don't own something, if you don't have access to wealth, 
you, all you are is somebody that's making money for somebody else. And that bootstrap bullshit doesn't ever work, right? Mm. Like, that's a great mythology of America, right? Yeah. Like, work hard and that guy will be rich. Yeah, and, and it's something, <laughs> and what race does is, is it helps sell that narrative. Yeah. Because it's like, if you're white, well, I look like them, so it makes me think more Absolutely. so. Absolutely. I can become that, and I can right. aspire to that, when really you can't. Right. When your only real saving grace is, oh, I'm white and I'm right. better than And this. I'm better than, yeah. there is this great book called White trash and it trains. Yeah, I've seen that one. It's a great book. It's about how feudalism came to America and how we've lost the ability to talk about it, right? Like Mm. these small groups of people own everything and race and gender are then, but particularly race, um, because slavery grew out of the fact that they originally were bringing over poor white people and then once there was enough of us here, we could walk off and they were like, well, who... Should, who we don't know who the people Somebody's are. Somebody's got to do this work, and we're not. Yeah, <laughs> and we were like, well, we're going to bring people that we can easily tell should be here, right? And so this grows out of this thing, and then out of this comes this class-based fight that never goes away that is encouraged by this feudalism of and, this country. And it was important to divide those class... That, they have those, to. Because they, you know, like with um, the Bacon's Rebellion and stuff <laughs> like that, we don't want these, you know, we, we can't have like them unified as a whole working no. class, so let's create divisions, so we're going to give certain privileges. Y'all can be overseers. Right. You can have a small bit of land. You can make more money. You're yeah. not a complete slave. You're right. not a chattel slave right. versus black people who are going to have no rights, right. completely destroyed the culture and you created a hierarchy that has never went away right you know but when it comes when you- but it becomes invisible right like mm-hmm. it's far enough away that it's now been you know we sort of spread it across the bread enough and we're like I don't know anybody can be Obama can be president anybody mm-hmm. can be president like what well, yeah, he was a law professor who literally never made a mistake in his life yeah who, <laughs> who still had white grandparents that had a, right. a, very, a decent amount of wealth that could cover him right you know so he didn't necessarily he didn't rise up from he didn't, the, <laughs> he didn't come out of the ashes of the project <laughs> you know <laughs> right and a lot of us don't want to hear that but that's just the truth of it and it I always say look, like even with things like um like I talk to my pe- my people in my circle all the time, and we class on these matters because um, it's like I always say something like affirmative action. I was like affirmative action doesn't matter at McDonald's, right? Like, <laughs> right. like I was like that doesn't. I was like diversity doesn't mean shit at McDonald's, right? Because you're not making anything. That's what they want you to work, right? So affirmative action is something that as much as beneficial as it's been, it only matters when you're trying to climb the social ladder, right? right? But for people at the bottom, diversity in the labor market is not really, it doesn't mean shit, but right. diversity in a lot of, like, corporate offices becomes a conversation. Right. A lot of times, the 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 social capital of working class people becomes co-opted by the middle class yeah. to advance their issues. Absolutely. Even amongst the black community sometimes. Yeah, it, and that's, that the affirmative action stuff is tied to race, right, mm-hmm. and tied to gender. And I'm always like, dude, the reason the pushback is because it's about money. Mm-hmm. It's about access and class. Mm-hmm. If it was, ju- we we know science tells us you make better decisions the more diversity you have. The different kind of thinking that you have, and the different kind of people with different backgrounds. If you put them all together, you make better decisions. So there's no reason to not want that, mm-hmm. except. I don't want you to have my money. Nope. <laughs> like that. And, and so and it, it becomes this really like ah, the pushback isn't about race. It's, it is, but it's not. Right, like it's about the what does race really? How does that impact you? It's right, not like that's what I'm saying. Like we can, it doesn't mean that there isn't real psychological things and people couldn't love each other and right. appreciate each other, and that's all important. But right. it was it was instituted specifically to divide to to 
distribute resources. Yeah. And that's still what it does. It helps us say who deserves what and who right. doesn't. Right. Like it's always been that. Right. And we and, and class and gender also have the same impact yeah. on saying who deserves what and who doesn't. It who, really is deserves too. It's not yeah. an access. It really is like who deserve who is more deserving and how does that benefit us, us as in a ruling class of, you right. know, how does that keep things in order? And it, and like you said, it's contextual now, so it doesn't always play out the same. So right. you're right when, if being Michelle Obama in a car ride with a policeman in a nice car, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> that hasn't changed. Yeah, but <laughs> being Michelle Obama, it just got a, her and a, I think just got a $60 million book deal. Yeah. You know, like most of us aren't, we're, we're sitting here in a bookstore. <laughs> I'm still waiting for yeah, my $60 million. Yeah. And it doesn't mean she, I'm not hating on her, no. but it's just to say that it's, it's different. Yeah. And it's like, you can pull it out with a lot of them. It's like, they're, um, there's there's always a few that make it out yeah. of each group, right? And they become like the aspiration for right. the rest of us, right? And that's across the board, yeah. So we are, and it becomes that single narrative too, right? Like this is the like this is the shining beacon. I'm like mm-hmm. ah, that shit always makes me really like ah, you know, I'm lucky, right? Like I can turn on TV and I can see shows that really show the diversity of like white dudes and mm. so there's not like you can have an anti-hero and I'm not like oh well that's the only character and therefore white dudes are just bad people right yeah, yeah there's not any of <laughs> yeah, that yeah it's not that simple that shining beacon stuff really starts to concern me so when did this begin to this conversation that we've ha- uh, had because that that is how I came to know you through the, just hearing some of the stuff that you've done. And I was like, I kept telling folks, I'm like, oh, yeah, we need more of this here. Like, this is, <laughs> we need more of that. Because it's challenging, right? It's, in some ways, it's not. In some ways, it's, it is exactly the normal response that you would expect somebody to have who's African-American in this country. Mm. But in another way, it makes people uncomfortable, right? Because mm. they don't like hearing that. So when did you begin to say, like, Okay, this this is the thing that I want to say, and this is the thing that I have to say, and because a lot of your stuff focuses on this, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it definitely does. Um, I don't know. It, <laughs> when did you feel comfortable with it? When did it become the thing where you're like, nope, this is like this is right? Like whatever people are saying to me about it, like maybe you know, relax or calm down or don't be so mad. You're like, nope, wrong. You're wrong. I, and maybe some of it was probably just an arrogance. They're not reading, and I am. Uh, <laughs> so you've always felt like this is you when you when you found the voice, you knew this was your voice. Yeah, it just I don't know. It just made like again we have to go back to um to to childhood. Like it wasn't that I was raised to be this you know Black Panther or anything yeah. like that. But it was like my my father did like I watched Roots at three, <laughs> the original one. Yeah, yeah. I experienced. Yeah, I hear people folk sometimes say they didn't experience racism as a kid. I don't. I experienced racism at three. It's the first time I remember it, and it wasn't some like mild situation. Like this was a kid hitting me with a toy. He had a toy like a whip, and he was calling me a slave and nigga, and he was running chasing me around the room at three. So I'm. What was happening in that room that that was okay? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the three you don't you just remember yeah, that. Yeah, I just and I remember. Um, Jesus Christ! His mom was so outraged, but ironically, is when we get older, um, I see his mom is on Facebook on some tea party shit. Right. And they didn't really come from the Appalachians, right? You know, so there wasn't. It was weird to see her on that. They you know? developed that on their own. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because that was my babysitter. 
So this, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is a three. So it, I wasn't really able. <laughs> no, you got to laugh at these things. <laughs> right. Like, that was my babysitter. Her son's doing that to me at three. And my parents never really even talked about it. It was just like, because it came out of nowhere. Right. You know, but it was, I remember little things looking back. Like, I always had to play. When we played cops and robbers, I was always a robber. <laughs> I remember when we played um, cowboys and Indians, I never could be the cowboy. Right. I remember wanting to be the cowboy and even thinking how problematic that could be. But, like, I always wanted to be the cowboy. I had to be the Indian. Right. I had to play with the well, Indians. Well, look, if you got to be one of the two, that's who you want to be. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And it's now, problematical, but. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's, it's so those things were happening really early on. Yeah. So even though I wasn't, like, always like this. Those experiences just don't go away. No. Well, you know? it's interesting because you used the word militant very early on. And, like, I, that's always one of those. It's That always seems like a word that is contextualized from external to what it is, right? Like, mm. it's actually not. To me, it's not militant to talk about. Um, you did an education poem, and I can't remember, but it was basically about how fucked up the education system was. Was it the one we're talking about my degree? Yeah, like oh, it was yeah. A relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, when you have used that word, and when other people use the word, I'm always like, I feel like an, a rational response <laughs> to irrational stimuli is not actually militant. I believe that is a rational response yeah, but, to an irrational. And yeah. just because other people are like, well, that's kind of angry and militant, I'm like, you're wrong. Right, like it's, it's angry and militant from their vantage point. Right, and it's that just, word is that description of it is not your description of it. Right, yeah. like that is an external description. Yeah, and it's but what I I learned what I t- tend to do is I just I'll just take the word and own it. And, yeah, and now there's no shame on it anymore. It's yeah, kind of like too black, right? Like right. that's a word that's, or that's a phrase used to shame folks all the time. Like. It's my name. Right. So I feel no guilt. Right. No sense of shame. So you lose that power. Like, you ever seen Eight Mile? It's not the greatest movie, but when um, the end, when Eminem says all of the things that they were going to say about him right. in his own battle rap, yeah. like, he disses himself. So when he hands the dude with the mic, he didn't have anything else to say. Right. Because he took all your lines from you. He right. owned it. He's like, I am white trash. I do live with my mom. You know, <laughs> he, right. he owned all that. Like, right. like, I don't care. You know, it was like, I'm still here seeing it, fuck, fuck the free world. Right. Like, it was in that sense of, I'm going to, so you, uh, sometimes I just own these things. Like, yeah. you know, it's kind of how, even the conversation around the N-word, or nigga, yeah. like, it's the idea of we're going to own it. It does, hasn't played out as successfully, <laughs> but if you own it, the the idea was you flip it and you make it sure. something that's not as shameful. Yeah. Um, but it's still, that to me is a... It is both, yes, anybody has to do that, right? You have to do that. But it is still, anytime I talk to folks about this, I'm always like, that is an indicative of the problem. Yeah, it's right? true. Like, it is yeah. the fact that you have to take something and say this is not shameful mm-hmm. is exactly why it's a problem. Yeah, it's true. And it's amazing how that doesn't resonate with people, right? Because again, there's this defensiveness. Like, well, I didn't, I didn't own slaves. Like, it's not fucking about you. Yeah. It's not about you. Like, a system can be in place and and it not be your fault. You can benefit from a system in place, and that the development of that not be your fault. But then, if you know it and don't do something about it, mm. now you're complicit in it. Yeah. And you have to sort of 
be able to have that conversation yeah, and not get defensive. Yeah, because I can't. Oh, I've, I don't disrespect women. That doesn't mean patriarchy is non-existent, right? You know, right? <laughs> I don't. I've never sexually assaulted anyone. <laughs> right. You know that again. Pat on the back, like, yeah. Never and, and raped the, anybody. Like this for yeah. me. <laughs> and that's the thing is as if that's somehow like an accomplishment, right? You know, like, and that's the thing. It's such a low bar for people. <laughs> right. Like a low bar for humanity. Like I've never. I've never owned a slave right. as if that's some moral high ground. Right. You know? right. <laughs> I've never as opposed to that should be the baseline. Yeah. <laughs> like you should or, own people. Or I've never raped anyone. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You're such a great person. Right. Good for you. Right. You it's a, it's, this is like a different version of well spoken black people. Yeah. Right. Like you speak well. Like, okay. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> like Low bars. I had somebody tell me once, I used to work at Wired, and I used to do a lot of TV, and somebody came up to me once and said, I've never heard anybody who sounded like you say smart things about technology. And I'm like, I don't even know how to begin to process that, but I know I want to punch you. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I want to begin, <laughs> by hitting you. Uh, so, and so one of the discussions that I've had sort of in this um, post-election world yeah. um, is... It has been, it's twofold, right? Like, um, a lot of white folks have been awakened to the fact that America has flaws, right? Like, particularly white women. Yeah, another they, low standard, right? right as, yeah. they, uh, <laughs> as I would have these discussions, like, I finally had to tell a couple of my friends, like, well, you, what you don't want to do is go out in the world and be like, oh, my God, like, we are so disrespected. I'm like, right. Yeah. And as my friend AJ has said, like, I want to open the door and say, welcome to America. Like, this is the, like, this is, this has been going mm-hmm. on. And as he told me, like, they shoot me in the street today, just like they shot me in the street yesterday. Like nothing, literally nothing has changed mm-hmm. in my world other than they just now say it. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like that's the big difference. And so the importance of um, the stuff that I write and the way I approach writing and the things that I think about writing did change after that, because I do feel like, um, addressing these things now becomes I don't have the benefit of writing whatever I want anymore. Like I feel like these structures need to be written about and talked about um, and particularly people that look and sound like me need mm. to be writing about them and having these discussions and not just saying well two blacks having this discussion so that discussion's happening in America that mm. like I have to have that discussion. Do you find that you that you're writing or the ways and the, the things that you write about or want to write about or because you're getting ready to go to California in a couple of days, right? Mm-hmm. Have they changed over these last hundred days or are you, I mean, I, it's the same for you. Yeah. I mean, what, <laughs> if people hear against the gangster, like which was written years ago, it sounded like I was writing about Trump then like the character I'm playing in that poem in a way, like it's, for me, it's. Um, I mean, there's. I've, I haven't written anything in response to it. I think I was well, one poem I did put a line or two in about Trump. Um, but by and large, the issues are the same. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> like, it's ain't just, nothing new that happened. Honestly, my. I I don't. If everybody jumps on a bandwagon, I'm always like, I don't want to write about that. So right. so if everybody's writes about how terrible Trump is. I would if I my next one to deal with this climate would probably be about like the Democrats and mm-hmm. their you know their lack of or their obliviousness and mm-hmm. their um, inability to see their own internal problems and yeah. just liberals and and the, this whole idea that all of a sudden like you said America is terrible like oh my god yeah like that's what I would want to write about right. if I was to sit down as if you were to say write about this I don't the Trump thing 
if you go to any open mic, there's a million poems about how terrible Trump is and right. the orange, you know, Cheeto right. and all of that stuff. Right. Like, you know, like there's enough people that will handle that. But for me, um, and that's not interesting to me. No, it's not because it actually misses the deeper truth, which exactly. is for you, the world didn't change. No, um, for me, it became clear that I had to change the way I talked about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I was telling somebody the other day, like I took this job in Pittsburgh. It's uh, 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 nor- it's one of the largest northern Appalachian cities, and I was like. It- I can go into those places and talk to those people because my family's been there for 400 years. Zero people can tell me I don't fucking have the bona fides to do that. And if Mm. they give me some bullshit, I'm like, well, let's have a conversation in a way that you couldn't go in there and do that. Mm. So that becomes my responsibility, Mm -hmm. right? Like that becomes, I don't get to abdicate that anymore. And what's interesting, what I have found interesting is as I have started to talk about race and class more, there it, because I look the way I do and I sound the way I do. Mm-hmm. So I say race and people are like, <gasps> like hmm, how's no. this going to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it, it has clo- not closed off, but it has focused what I feel like I have a responsibility to write about which is interesting for a white guy in America to go, oh, shit, like, I have to actually shrink down my... Like, I have a responsibility to Mm -hmm. do this. This is... I have to represent this stuff. And as I've tried to explain that to people, I'm like, this is a microcosm of what it is like to not be a majority in the majority in America, that I, I now have to take that on my back because black people, women, Hispanics, they can't go into those areas in the way that I can. No, and, and when and it's not their responsibility to. No, and, and it's like when when someone like yourself or other writers, white writers, try to take it on. Like, there's a lot of accolades that come with that. Like, oh, right, he sees us. He, yeah, he's so insightful <laughs> and he just gets it. Right. Like, you know, I wish there was more allies like this. Right. Oh, but you know, allies. Yeah. <laughs> but when I do it, or when someone right. else does it, it's you know, oh, he's angry. Like, it goes back right. to that point, or oh, that's what we expected. Right. It's not very imaginative. Right. Um, we don't really know if he can. If, can he talk about anything else? Or, right. You know, and that's why sometimes I, I slip other things in. Like I can speak on education. I can speak. Right. Like I just wrote this poem. It's the um, not single narrative, right? Yeah. Like I know we've talked a lot about race and class, but like there, that is a thing, not the only thing. Yeah, and it's and it's and people because it impacts life. It does not shape the entirety of yeah. it. So. And it impacts it in a hard way, but it, it's not the entirety of it. Like, I wrote this poem. It's clearly dealing with race, but it's, it's called I Want to Come Home to You, or Come Home is what it's called. And it was like, I want to take, like, the cliche love poem and put it together with police brutality <laughs> and see how it, so So it's really just about a guy who wants to get home to his girl. Yeah. It starts there. Yeah. Um, he gets pulled over. And then it's all of the emotions that he goes through thinking that his life might end right. before the cop even gets to the door. Oh, so and the whole poem is before the cop even gets there. Before he even gets there. And all of him going back and forth, the, the relationship that he has with this woman right. and how much he loves her, but you know, trying to figure out how he needs to respond to this policeman and whether this policeman is, you know, and he can already, the policeman's got his gun out already yeah. and he's, um, he's he not speeding or anything. Right. He's already been pulled over. So you start wondering, well, what is, what's going to happen to me? Right. And, um, you know, and just wrestling with that and really how that impacts an actual relationship. Yeah. Cause we talk about police brutality. Right. In a sense, oh, they killed us right. or, and that's, 
clearly important, <laughs> but all of the, a lot of times the, the stops don't end in death, right. but there's so much anxiety carried. There's so right. much, um, fear of worrying about, is it over? Right. Even in that moment. So, you know, he's, he's wrestling with that. Um, and it, and it kind of oscillates back and forth from him speaking about the story, me, I'm playing that character to him speaking about this relationship yeah. and seeing like how you know how important is this to me and do I really want to um how do I want to play this but then I realizing that doesn't really have any power in how he plays it right so like almost two-thirds of the poem through he's like you know so I'd rather comply than die but only if the choice is that easy if my behavior truly dictated how the police would treat me if one false move wasn't confused for my dark hue if my niggerness wasn't a hindrance to him seeing me as innocent, you know, like just that, yeah. that right there, right. like after he's already kind of rolled through, like, okay, hands on the wheel, right. sit up, like all of these things, it actually doesn't have anything to do right. with this. My it behavior doesn't. doesn't actually get me home. Right. You know? And it's not so, it, when I hear that, right, like it is, it is, um, it is not that different than when you hear like a woman who is sexually assaulted and somebody goes, what are you wearing? Mm-hmm. Right, like it's that same thing. Like that, that's actually had nothing to do with it, mm-hmm. right? Like, and what you do has nothing to do, at least as I'm hearing it, right, has nothing to do with the outcome that's about to happen. Mm-hmm. This is out of my control, and I don't think um, I'm in therapy for this. So this is how come I think I do know this. That the stress and anxiety that people go through, like, fucking changes your life, right? Mm-hmm. And and for me, it is external, right? Like as opposed to what you're describing, which is a thing that exists all the time the underlying sort of way that that person you whatever african americans go through the world is that stress and anxiety is always there right mm-hmm. there's never a time when you can just take off the belt take off your shoes and be like well i've made it i'm fine like that exists as a thing and the simplicity of it is he just wants to get home right and i wanted it to be that simple right not all of this intersectional intellectual <laughs> blah no i just he really just wants to get home like there's another part where i'm like um you know um uh erring on the side of caution and i'm describing a policeman at this point erring on the side of caution isn't let me just, how far back do i want to go I'm trying to think of um I love now rest at the mercy of a cop who's terrified and bloodthirsty. He's approaching anxiously, hand shaking, with his gun pointing, and the sweat that drips down his face indicates that he's struggling with the gravity of the power he's been assigned to carry. And I'm sure this is a man who's loved and married, who, if you spoke to, probably wants to get home too. But yet, erring on the side of caution is some, ain't something that his racist police department taught him. Plus, he's he's plus he's driven by a system of isms bigger than him. But then I'm then I'm like, I could care less about the theoretical context, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm I'm struggling to accept that I right. may not make it past this threat, right? Like it's so like even that, though he's got his own thing, yeah, like don't give don't, a shit. Yeah, I don't yeah. care. <laughs> and and that's the thing. We not when you're in that moment, right? You're not. You're not intellectualizing this shit. Right. right. <laughs> you know, you just want to get home. Right. And I think, like, the general simple humanity of these things gets lost. Like, we, when we were talking about resources, people just want to eat. Right. Well, and it's yeah. why discussions about these things afterwards, when, when they do get intellectualized, like, it, it is, um, you know, when I watch the Black Lives Matter people discuss with 
whoever they happen to be discussing. Like, it is two conversations. Like, one is what you've said, right? Like, mm-hmm. we can't, this is not about, this is just like, I just want black people to be able to get home. And then you have these sort of external folks that are like, yeah, but it, wouldn't it be, it's like, no, 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 Those, that's a difference. Yes, in a perfect world, what you've said is right. That's the top of Maslow. We are at the bottom of Maslow, mm-hmm. right? Like, step one is have a house over my head that I can get to. The last one is, ah, okay, now I'm going to feed my philosophy. Yeah. Right? Um, and I feel like that is the, I don't know if I can characterize it, but that seems to be the, the, the white-black conversation around Black Lives Matter, right? Like, Black Lives Matter seems to be very much about we should be able to get home. Mm-hmm. And the white discussion around it is like, yeah, but do they have to be so in your face about things? Mm. Like, yeah, yeah, because again, just want to get home. Yeah, it's that simple. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's really that simple. And when I block your traffic, that is the only way I can take the metaphor into real space, yeah. which isn't it a pain in the ass not to be able to get home. And I don't know why that's so difficult. I mean, I do, but like, I see that and I'm like, yeah. Well, there's there's a, there's better ways that they could uh, model their behavior. Right. I love you know, that one, right? Like, <laughs> we'd like you to protest. Like, do it like Dr. King. I'm like, you know he fucking shut down bridges, right? Like, where they had to bring out dogs and shit like that. Yeah. Like, there wasn't a... People died in those protests. <laughs> yeah, there know? wasn't like a... People were murdered in those protests. Right, yeah, they didn't they, die. They were murdered. Yeah, like... <laughs> Yeah, that right. didn't, like, there wasn't it, a peaceful. Uh, he he went. He wrote letters from jail. Right, you know he he right. was in jail more than than most of us. You know, right. talking about this kind. Of, this. Right. So no, it wasn't. he just didn't have the fruit of Islam with guns. So you are like, oh, he was he was peaceful. Yeah, like, not. <laughs> no, he was. Everything around him was not. No, and that was the whole point. Right, was to was to take the moral authority to show right your to show the lack thereof right. for the people that you know they were facing. But and it's only taken about fifty years for people to start to wrap their head around what that means. So yeah, it didn't. <laughs> it wasn't like and, that. And he and he was assassinated too. So right. where did peace get him? Right, first, <laughs> right, like of the people, like. Uh, no, when was Malcolm killed? It was Megger, Malcolm, Malcolm King. first, yeah. Ma- Megger's sixty-three, Malcolm was sixty-five, King was sixty-eight. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's uh, and those are just the prominent leaders. Right, there were plenty of others. Yeah, yeah. you know that were knocked off as well or yeah. beat down pretty pretty harshly. Um, well, this has been great. Um, and I appreciate you uh, coming in. And so you're leaving, you go to California, and then do, do you, are there regular things that happen around Indian? We didn't even get into like the fucked up weird shit about Indianapolis. Like, yeah. is there regular stuff that you got going on here, or are you just here and there when you do? Um, I kind of pop up here and there. Yeah. I don't regularly, I mean, there's open mics I'll go to. Um, and there's that piece open mic that happens on it every third Thursday. Um, Where's that at? That's on. That's in Fountain Square. That's on um, six four two Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, Fletcher's place. Yep. Um, then there's one up in Castleton called um, Vow Vibe on Wednesdays. It's on Wednesday. That's every second and fourth Wednesday of the yeah. month, I think. Or is all that up on two black? Is two black dot net? Is that? I don't have those those up. I could give you the information Do. for those. Do. Um, because I want to get, I want to start talking about like we keep a calendar of all the stuff that's going on around town and like mm. slowly building it. Um, but it was great having you. It's good to see you. I know it's been a few years, but like I'm no wanting to get this on. So uh, have a good trip, and we'll talk soon. All stuff, all stuff.
right. Well, that was my interview with Two Black. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed doing it. Um, you can check out his work at twoblack.net. He travels a lot. He does shows. Um, he does training workshops. So you should, um, if you're in the greater Indianapolis area, you should definitely check out um, the work he does around here. And um, he travels and, and performs as well. So make sure you keep up with what he's doing. Uh, just a little bit, just a reminder for us, HoosierLit.com or HoosierLit is now out. So you can go to the geekypress.com backslash HoosierLit and purchase that. The Dear America Project is the submission portion of this is closed. We're now moving on. Um, we got a whole bunch of stuff coming up, so make sure that you keep stopping by. Sign up for our meetup group if you can. We're always putting on events. We've sold out our our uh, yearly retreat, but we'll have some half-day retreats coming up here soon. So, hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you come back. Hope you spread the word about this. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real. It's intimate. And it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts.